0: Good morning, Captain Wentworth.
1: Miss Elliot. So, you are come to Bath? Well, yes, I I am. And how do you like it? Bath?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I've yet to see it.
1: Your family? Yes. Are they in health? They are, they are, thank you.
0: And you, are you, uh, in Hill?
1: <laughs> I am very well indeed, thank you, Captain.
0: I've hardly seen you since that wretched day at Lyme. I'm afraid you must have suffered somewhat from the shock, the more so from it not overpowering you at the time.
1: I do not think I was in danger from suffering from not being overpowered, thank you, Captain. <laughs>
0: When you had the presence of mind to send Captain Benning for a surgeon, I'll bet you had little idea of the consequences.
1: No, I had none. But I hope it will be a very happy match.
0: Indeed, I too wish them luck. They have no difficulties to contend with at home. No opposition. No caprice, no delays. And yet... Phoebe Havel was a wonderful woman, and he was devoted to her, and a man does not recover from such a devotion to such a woman. He ought not. He does not. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special bonus holiday, live from quarantine, I don't know what to call it, edition. Claire and I decided to just chat for fun about a book we've always loved, Jane Austen's novel Persuasion. We've loved chatting together about some of these books over the past few weeks and just figured why not do a few more while we're all stuck indoors. So we'll chat about persuasion, and at the end of this recording, I'll invite you to think about ways this novel can help you learn how to make the drama of your own stories more internal. The quote of the day is particularly good because it needs no commentary from me. It's a sentence from Jane Austen's novel, Northanger Abbey, where Austen wrote quote, The person, be it gentleman or lady, who has not a pleasure in a good novel must be intolerably stupid. And for more on the pleasures of a very good novel, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. So, hello, Claire. Hello. Author of What Was Left of the Stars. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And a novel, The Field is White. We're talking about one of our favorite novels today for sure, right? Yeah. It's kind of perfect in a way. Oh, yeah. In what way is it perfect? I mean, it's not as, strange to say, it's not as great a novel as, I don't know, Anna Karenina or, but it is kind of flawless still.
1: It is. I'm always surprised. I've read it several times, and I never really meant to reread it. (laughs) Whenever I ended up rereading it, it was more like I looked into it, opened it up again because I missed some of the characters, and then I just kind of was drawn in again, and each time I'm surprised by how new it feels and how gorgeous, how moving and, and subtle and powerful it is. And it, it surprises me because hardly a single thing happens from, you know, from an outside mm-hmm. <laughs> perspective. The story couldn't be more normal.
0: So you would expect a rereading to be even less exciting because you already, not only does almost nothing happen, but you already know all of that, almost nothing.
1: Exactly. But on the contrary,
0: I've read it a few times now, you're even more invested each time.
1: Yes, and And, it gets better with age, I think.
0: And even though you know, spoiler alert, this is a Jane Austen novel, they get together in the end. The tension, the suspense, the emotional trauma is real every single Mm. time.
1: Yeah, it's alive.
0: So maybe we should do a tiny plot summary. People may or may not have read this. There's this uh, knight, I think it's his his official title. He's a knight, Sir Walter. He's rich and he's vain, and he has three daughters— Two of which are, what would you say, slightly shallow, slightly superficial, slightly, slightly self-centered. And the yes. third, Anne, is, how would you describe Anne? Inward, emotionally withdrawn, but charitable, compassionate, intelligent.
1: Yes, warm and deep thinking yeah, warm. and full of mystery.
0: She falls in love with this captain, with this man, this officer in the Navy, not yet a captain, Wentworth is persuaded by one of her friends, her kind of surrogate mother, because her mother, Anne's mother, is dead. So this kind of surrogate mother, Lady Russell, persuades Anne that it's not a good match, and Lady Russell has her reasons for this. But even though Anne and Wentworth really love each other, Anne is persuaded that Lady Russell is right, and she breaks off the engagement, and they go their separate ways. And how many years later, eight years later? Seven or eight years later, they meet up again. And that's the beginning of the novel. And the novel is certainly one of the most simple... Jane Austen novels in terms of plot. There's no subplot. There is no plot twists. There's no surprises. There's no deceits. I mean, there is a slight deceit on the character of Mr. Elliot, but that doesn't really come into it very much. Mm-hmm. It's the most simply constructed novel I could ever imagine. It's just two people slowly in orbit around each other, coming closer and closer together, wanting to come closer together without saying without being allowed to say that they want to. Mm-hmm. That's it for about two hundred pages. It's so elegant,
1: yeah,
0: I mean, its construction is so elegant. I want to talk about the the narrative structure by which I just mean so much of this is subtext. Like there's so much yearning in this book. Uh, there is so much yearning and love, but it's all stifled. yeah, so my first question is how do we know that Anne loves Wentworth as much as she does? She never says she does. She never gets to say that she does. Who would she tell this to?
1: Yeah, this is one of the things that makes this book such a masterpiece, in my opinion. Jane Austen's it's more subtle than all her other novels. And it sets up, from the very beginning, this environment in which that helps us understand what Anne must be feeling, even though we're not directly being told. You know, the, the novel starts with a man, a very vain man. And then we find out that he is the father <laughs> and uh, that's already, you know, disappointing for any, any daughter would be disappointed to have that kind of father. And especially as we find out that she's, you know, 28 or wait, how old is she? She's
0: 28.
1: And um, that she's the least favorite daughter and that she's quote unquote out of bloom and that her dad doesn't admire her in any way because... Uh, mostly because she's out of bloom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, any woman or, or man reading that would understand that what a kind of heartbreaking family dynamic that is. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she has, she feels like her worth in the eyes of her family members is so low, and that she's lost her mother, a mother who is pre- described in detail um, as having been a really wonderful, strong woman who. You know, because she was young. And this is interesting. When she was young, and this, and the book even says that it should be she should be forgiven for this that she was a little that she was persuaded by Sir Sir Elliot's good looks, mm-hmm. and then he turned out to be, of course, um, not a great husband. Yeah. So yeah, even good people make bad marriage decisions. So all of those things, and the loss of um, Captain Wentworth, and. Um, all of that sets up what, you know, our expectations of how Anne must be feeling.
0: Okay. So part of the yearning is made clear through context. Exactly. But there are these wonderful little, it's its the most subtle novel because um, it's a novel of, I think Jane Austen is actually a much more terrifying, I think her characters undergo much more terror mm. than we give them credit for. What's at mm. stake Let's ask this. What is at stake for getting married or not getting married for Anne? Like what is, What is? if you're on the cusp of this weird middle class where you're in debt and you're spending more than you're making, it's like any year now you could turn, I think the character of Mrs. Smith, who had a great thing going for a long time, a husband, money, health, Mm -hmm. suddenly the husband gets in debt and she turns into this like widow, invalid Mm -hmm. pauper who has nothing.
1: Who has no true. food.
0: So I think Mrs. Smith is a kind of vision of what's at stake for Anne. Like, if Anne doesn't make the right romantic choices... That's true. ...it could get as bad as it gets for a person. Hmm. So this isn't really like a cute little fairy tale about falling in love. It's like everything is at stake here. Anne, this isn't just love. It's food, shelter, health, safety.
1: Right. And she, in considering all that, that makes it even more impressive that she... Uh, rejected Charles Musgrove after Captain Wentworth. Yeah. She had the chance. And that that's another window into how much um, marrying for love means to her. Right. And that she is unconventional in that way.
0: But in terms of narrative technique, it's like Anne never says how much she loves Captain Wentworth. Yeah. But there are these wonderful bits that we, these interior little fragments, little oh. flashes, little flashes of emotion that are so brief and therefore so intense Mm. that we can see it all.
1: I know. I love the first time um, she and Captain Wentworth are sitting on a couch together with only Mrs. Musgrove, I think it is, between them. It's just three people sitting on a couch, but it's such a dramatic moment. You can just feel the tension.
0: And she, Anne says to herself, or the narrator says to herself. Again, they kind of fuse together in this free and direct discourse. But like, there was only one person between them. They, yeah. They were on the same couch. Yeah. And it's like it's an objective statement of fact, but under it is this volcano, the surging lava of terror, <laughs> you know what I mean? and excitement too, but terror.
1: It, you never hear Anne saying, "And I was." <laughs> I couldn't believe that we sat so close to each other and my heart sank yeah, that's in right. my breast. <laughs> well,
0: there's this wonderful thing when they first see each other, Captain Wentworth walks into the room. So oh. she knows that he's around.
1: Right. That's a
0: good one. And then he walks into the room and they like do this polite bow and there's other people there to kind of cut the tension. And then he leaves. And then it says this. "It So uh, the Miss Musgroves were gone too, suddenly resolving to walk to the end of the village with the, with the sportsman. The room was cleared and Anne might finish her breakfast as she could.
1: Yes, it she is, could. <laughs>
0: it is over. It is over, she repeated to herself again and again in n- in nervous gratitude. The worst is over. And all that's happened is that she was in the same room as Wentworth. Mm. And she thinks, oh, this will be the last time I have to endure that. It is over. It is over. Little yeah. F- flashes of like, but again, it's, it's just a tag. It's just one little tag, one little phrase. And we see the an enormous chasm of tension, of fear.
1: I know. I feel like the... A series of romance novels couldn't come close to the tension of that little bit right there. I
0: think my most favorite is this moment with the carriage. So they go on this long walk. Oh, yeah. They go on this long walk and um, who is it? The Crofts, Admiral Croft and Mrs. Croft Mm. find out, oh, they've gone on this long walk. Maybe we'll take the carriage and pick up whoever is too tired to walk back home. Mm -hmm. So they go, let me read here. The walking party had crossed the lane and were sur- surmounting an opposite style, and the admiral was putting his horse into motion again when Captain Wentworth cleared the hedge in a moment to say something to his sister. The something might be guessed by its effects. "'Miss Elliot,' this means Anne, "'I am sure you are tired,' cried Mrs. Croft. "'Do let us have the pleasure of taking you home. Here is excellent room for three, I assure you. If we were all like you, I believe we might sit four. You must, indeed, you must.' Anne was still in the lane, and though instinctively beginning to decline, she was not allowed to proceed. The admiral's kind urgency came in support of his wife's. They would not be refused. They compressed themselves into the smallest possible space to leave her a corner, and Captain Wentworth, without saying a word, turned to her and quietly urged her to be assisted into the carriage. And then the narrator says this, which is Anne thinking, yes, he had done it. She was in the carriage." and felt that he had placed her there, that his will and his hands had done it, that she owed it to his perception of her fati- fatigue and his resolution to give her rest. She was very much affected by the view of his disposition towards her, which all these things made apparent. This little circumstance seemed the completion of all that had gone before. She understood him. He could not forgive her, but he could not be unfeeling. Though condemning her for the past and considering it with high and unjust resentment. Though perfectly careless of her and though becoming attached to another, still he could not see her suffer without the desire of giving her relief. This wonderful, like, breathless. He had done it. It was him. Mm-hmm. He whispers into his sister's ear, Put Anne in the carriage. She's tired, you know? Oh. And then without saying that this is what Wentworth said, Mrs. Croft is like, Oh, yeah, Anne, why don't you? How would you describe this, this inner... It's a kind of epic event, you know, in the life of any love-struck person. Like, oh, this is proof. Little tiny, this little small circumstance is proof that he doesn't love me, sure, but he doesn't hate me either.
1: I know. And only somebody who feels extremely strongly about somebody else would, first of all, notice that they are slightly tired. Because there's no way she was that tired. (laughs) Right. She was just slightly tired. He must have really observed her closely to even notice And then to um, want to help her like anonymously. Right. Yeah, that speaks volumes.
0: But for the author too, I mean, this is a novel. Henry James said that the novelist is the person on whom nothing is lost. Mm -hmm. And this is a novel in which the most intense and significant emotional turmoil is depicted in glances, glances of glances,
1: glances <laughs> of, of glances
0: of glances,
1: <laughs> ghosts of glances, <laughs> ghosts of glances.
0: whispers, shadows of whispers, echoes of shadows of whispers. You know, it's all like the most slightly, barely perceptible winks
1: mm-hmm.
0: be- behind which is this like war of emotion, you know? So for Jane Austen to, first of all, Perceive these in the world, to perceive such glances and know what they mean. Mm -hmm. And then to be able to construct such a complicated and intensely real narrative using only these glances, these minimal strokes.
1: She is the perfect example of somebody who, somebody who might, you know, a woman who might have thought that her life is not interesting enough to write about. Yeah. She might have. Said, You're talking about
0: Jane Austen, not Anne Elliot. Yes,
1: Jane Austen. She might have thought, you know, well, I haven't really experienced anything great. I'm just sitting in these drawing rooms, you know. Right. I help in the in the house. So I, you know, I'm around, you know, pretty ordinary people that are very tied to social conventions and, but she proves that there is no life so small that you can't make intense dramas out of them.
0: Inside each of those drawing rooms, like an Iliad is happening. An Iliad, yes a Homeric epic of emotions is happening in every single one of those drawing rooms.
1: Yeah,
0: All you have to do is open your eyes. Well, you have to have Jane Austen's brain and then just open your eyes Mm. and like look around you. This is...
1: Yeah, there's no life that has to be uninteresting.
0: I also love that moment when... That kid? Is it Anne Elliott's? Oh, I'm so
1: glad yes. Nephew? Uh, yeah, she's at um the Musgroves house at her sister's Mary's. And um but she finds herself in a room <laughs> with uh, But it's the it's the guy that Henrietta is kind of interested in at first and then she forgets about him for a while. Mm-hmm. And then Captain Wentworth comes into the room too and And then this two year old child also um, comes stumbling into the room. (laughs) And and I I already love that the the dynamic of that. You know, these two men where there's a tension between those two because of the competition, because, you know, hater things that Wentworth is stealing Henrietta from him. and, And obviously the tension between Anne and. Wentworth, and then this little child comes in and doesn't know anything about anything <laughs> and he starts harassing Anne and
0: he won't leave Anne alone
1: he won't leave Anne alone and then um, she feels the child lifted from her and it's uh wentworth and he's he must be very close to her body if you know he's he's lifting the child from her
0: and he doesn't say anything he just like does this silent small almost mundane banal act of kindness to her like get rid of this Annoyance.
1: I know. And yeah, it's interesting because he, Hater, he just says, oh, I'll leave her alone. He doesn't really do anything about it. And that's because he doesn't love Anne. But Captain Wentworth immediately rescues her yeah. from even, you know, the slightest bit of discomfort, like an annoying toddler.
0: So, what is meaningful in life? You know, I like asking books this question like, what does this book think is, is meaningful in life? Um, Small acts of self-sacrifice for people that you love. Mm-hmm. Little things like letting them ride in the carriage. Yeah. Like picking up a child who's annoying them and helping them out in that way.
1: And not painting yourself as a hero for doing it just doing it. Like
0: Not wanting to get credit for it. Not wanting to be noticed because of it. Exactly. This is the opposite of Anne's father. What, yeah. is, what is not meaningful in life? Yes. Th- the amount of wrinkles that you have on a face or what creams you're using, you know, to keep your youthful complexion.
1: Or what registers you're in.
0: That's right. What ranks are beside your name. You know what I mean? No, 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 no. Anne, we love Anne because she chooses to go visit her invalid poor friend, Mrs. Smith, and not Lady mm-hmm. Um Yeah,
1: there are ways to be noble and ways to live an extremely eventful life within these seeming trivialities.
0: Within conventions. You yes. Know? So... Does Wentworth deserve Anne? Yes. Why? Because Anne is clearly good and noble and self-sacrificing and smart and patient. and.
1: She does have more self or more insight or self-awareness than Captain Wentworth. But it can be forgiven because he's only blinded because of his passion. Do <laughs> you think? When he, you know, resents Miss... Um- Lady Russell. Lady Russell, Because
0: yes. in Shakespeare, like... It's true that all of Shakespeare's great heroines marry down, you know. In all the comedies, all these great female characters are marrying men who are like not their equals in any way. Mm. This is definitely true. Mm. Um, even Elizabeth Bennet, Mister Darcy. It's like as great as Mister Darcy is, Elizabeth's way better.
1: Yeah, he has more money, but yeah, she's better. She's
0: she's smarter. She's funnier. She's more charming. She's just better in every way. Yeah. You think that? And you think that Wentworth deserves Anne? You think he's good enough for her?
1: The book, the book uh, paints a beautiful picture of him as it goes on with all these small acts of kindness towards her. That's great. Yeah, you, I think so. You you find out with each page more and more why she, being as wonderful as she is, fell in love with him.
0: Because he's so decent. Yeah. But we don't. We never guess that he has as complex an interior life. For all we know, he's a kind of. Shallow, Sir Walter. You know we don't know because we don't get to inhabit his mind.
1: That's true, but we do get to see what type of people he knows and appreciates, and that is another really beautiful part in the novel when Anne visits um, Lyme and she meets the Harvilles and she has that moment where she thinks these could have been my friends,
0: and and um,
1: they're just really down to earth, smart, kind people.
0: And Captain Wentworth is clearly concerned with a kind of brotherly love for captain benwick mm. whose wife has recently died and is in a, in a bad spot yeah and captain wentworth wants cares about him like yeah. as a brother and wants that's another marvelous interchange we don't have time for but poetry. and and telling captain benwick you read too much poetry i love it yeah
1: <laughs> it's like you might want to leave some allowance for other literature <laughs> yeah, increase
0: your diet of prose poetry is a the very people who gravitate most towards poetry is those for whom it's the most dangerous. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, why is this letter so good? So I'm going to read this letter. So there's this wonderful scene. Captain Wentworth is writing a letter. We think it's about something else. And then he comes back and he leaves. He comes back into the room and conspicuously like, pushes it in front of Anne's attention. <laughs> Anne reads it and it says this. I'll read it and then you, you tell us what's so great about this letter. Okay. Both in terms of its contents but also how it is operating in the book like why reveal it this way why include it in a letter do you know what i mean like yeah. if you were writing this novel why would you organize their reunion via a letter so late in the book in this way so she opens and opens the letter and it says this i can listen no longer in silence i must speak to you by such means as are within my reach you pierce my soul i am half agony half hope Tell me not that I am too late, that such precious feelings are gone forever. I offer myself to you again with a heart even more your own than when you almost broke it eight years and a half ago. Dare not say that man forgets sooner than woman, that his love has an earlier death. I have loved none but you. Unjust I may have been, weak and resentful I have been, but never inconstant. You alone have brought me to Bath, for you alone I think and plan. Have you not seen this? Can you fail to have understood my wishes?' I had not waited even these ten days. Could I have read your feelings, as I think you must have penetrated mine? I can hardly write. I am every instant hearing something which overpowers me. You sink your voice, but I can but I can distinguish the tones of that voice when they would be lost on others. Too good, too excellent creature. You do us justice indeed. You do believe that there is true attachment and constancy among men. Believe it to be most fervent, most undeviating in F.W. I must go uncertain of my fate, but I shall return hither or follow your party as soon as possible. A word, a look will be enough to decide whether I enter your father's house this evening or never.
1: <sighs> I am so grateful to Jane Austen for this moment because it's as, it's as if she's giving us a beautiful gift at the end where she's like i know i've been very subtle and you've enjoyed Mm. some of that subtlety up until this point but here's a little explosion of things said of feelings expressed as they are (laughs) and uh you know finally a character says exactly what he wants to say
0: and it's not subtle at all you pierce my soul
1: it's not subtle at all i love that
0: it's a great contrast to the slow, gentle, subdued, brooding, stifled, gradual—all too gradual. Mm. Suddenly, it's like enough, you know, enough. I can I can, be, I can remain in silence no longer.
1: I know. I've been silent for all these hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of pages—not hundreds, but it's as if uh, <laughs> he's yelling at Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah,
0: I love too that it's 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 unsubtle. It's 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 heroic in its unsubtleness, but also kind of awkward too. It I is. I mean, it's yeah. like I'm a I'm a kind of man, and I don't well, I don't know what I'm saying, man. For but it's <laughs> like I don't really know how to say this, so I'll just say it. And it's like these short, choppy sentences. You pierce my soul. Have you not seen this? Come on, don't you get it?
1: Yeah, he's not trying to there's no art. write
0: poetry. Yeah, there's no poetry,
1: mm-hmm.
0: no art. There's none of Anne's love of poetry in it. It's just like, okay, enough with the decoration. Enough with the doublespeak.
1: Let's be grown-ups.
0: And I also love it, too, because I think you're right to say that we were given little bits of proof that he deserves her in these little acts of charity that he commits. But mm. we're, we're kept out of his mind and heart, and then suddenly— It's totally exposed to us. And we Mm -hmm. see in it a soul that is as deep and loving and as capable of passion as Anne's. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And we had no idea. That's what I love so much about this letter. It's like, oh, that's who Captain Wentworth has been this whole time? I had no idea he was that.
1: mm, You're like, oh, that's why she's been so unhappy all these years, because she knows that, that that's what she's been missing.
0: Yeah, she knew this about him all along in a way. I mean, she didn't know that he loved her, but she knew he was capable of this kind of deep passion.
1: Yeah, which is, there's none of that, like, uh, level of passion in any other area of her life, like the people she, you know, in her family. Nobody is really passionate about anything. You know what I mean? Totally. Anything. (laughs) Yeah, totally. After all of these conversations we've been through, the Musgroves, you know, sitting and eating together, talking about property and... (laughs) And marriage even, but in such an unromantic way. And then this letter comes just at the right time. And one of my favorite things, we haven't really talked about how hilarious this novel is, but there is there is a lot of humor in it. Yeah. And one of those hilarious parts comes <laughs> comes at the end. I, I have to laugh so hard every time. So Anne has just read this letter, and we can only imagine what she's feeling. She can barely she's breathe. In a, she's in a daze. I mean, yeah. She's just wandering through the street, and she runs into Captain Wentworth. <laughs> and, you know, we've waited for this moment and never hoped that it would come. <laughs> And then Charles Musgrove <laughs> comes up and he's like, Oh, hey, are you going this way or that way? He's like, I hardly know which way I'm going, which is also romantic. But, um, yeah. And then Musgrove goes on on this long rant about. Let's
0: of, go buy a gun.
1: Yeah. He, some trivial thing. And he just keeps going and going. And we're like, OK, come on. <laughs> stop it, Charles. Just leave.
0: <laughs> well, Jane Austen is a master of this kind of suspense. You know, she put. She interrupts what would have been this like. To all too immediate embrace. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. I'm going to even withhold even more. <laughs> yeah. Slightly more withholding. You thought I was done withholding. I'm you know, speaking in the voice of Jane Austen. You thought I was done withholding with this letter, but I'm still not done withholding. I'm going to withhold the embrace. Enter, enter, bumbling Charles Musgrove, mm-hmm. and poor Anne and Wentworth just have to stand there blushing at each other, waiting for him to shut up and leave.
1: I know, and then. And then they, um, she takes his arm or he hers, I don't know. <laughs> and they just walk through the streets, not knowing where they're walking, not hearing people around them, not children or carriages. Mm. And that is another one of those examples where they're quietly breaking convention in their own way. They don't care what people around them are thinking. Mm-hmm. What they might, you know, say, they're like, oh, you know, we saw Anne and Kevin Wentworth. Are they, you know, gossiping or whatever. They they just don't care. Yeah. And that's uh, actually kind of new in Anne's life, isn't it? The ability does, to not care? Yeah, because she's so restrained and she's so careful and modest. Right. So there is there's kind of a big change there at the end. She's the moving change. more towards uh, the relationship that um frederick's sister Hmm. has with her husband
0: yeah i think the biggest change for Anne is that she this will be the end to a lot of that second guessing and self-doubt she's attained she knows now that she's mature in a way that she wasn't before yeah and she can go forward in life slightly more confident not totally confident nobody ever is but slightly more confident that she has attained a kind of wisdom yeah Um, and that her love is more seasoned because it's been more tried and that it will last longer because it's endured this already. You know what I mean?
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know. And we have – I don't think we've really talked about – maybe this means more to women, I shouldn't assume, but the fact that this is a book written about an older – I shouldn't say older woman, but, you know. 28, ancient. No, but considering (laughs) – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other novels, <laughs>
0: well, in the time, you know, the day it was—that exactly. is old to get married,
1: right? And old. and it's very clear the novel makes it very clear that she's out of bloom, whatever that means, you know. So um, I think it's significant that Jane Austen wrote a book about a woman who deserves everything good and even receives everything good, even though she is not the you know typical conventional heroine.
0: And this goodness is achieved by.
1: Not her looks. It's not that.
0: Yeah, it's.
1: Even though she goes to Lyme, like her dad even says, Oh, you, you know, what have you been using any creams or something? And that's actually quite a beautiful moment, not because it's like, Oh, Anne is beautiful again. It's not that. It's beauty radiates from inside her happiness. You know what I mean?
0: And Wentworth falls in love with who she is.
1: Yeah, that's a. Beautiful and powerful argument.
0: And um, Wentworth changes, she changes, he undergoes an important evolution as a character. He learns something about human nature and he learns to be persuadable and flexible. And um, it's, just a mir- it's just a miracle of a book, second chances, you know, like they never should have got this, but they do, they have it. It's a total miracle.
1: I know, and life so often is that way. Sometimes there are these second chances that seem overly generous and miraculous but they happen all the time Mm -hmm. not just in marriage but in many ways the movie by the way the uh when did it come out i have no information
0: (laughs) don't know it's really good though should i go watch oh you should all go watch it
1: perfectly complements the book
0: it's definitely the most faithful film adaptation of any piece of literature i think i've ever seen almost Mm -hmm. like i I think that's just because the book is so simply constructed Mm -hmm. there are no subplots to make it into a movie, you don't really have to condense it or change it or alter it. It is faithful to the book almost scene by scene, not to mention it being extremely well cast and extremely well acted. And it too is a kind of perfect movie. Yeah. The main dramatic tension of the book is that Anne and Wentworth cannot let each other know how they feel, Mm. but somehow have to find a way to let each other know how they feel. Yeah. So why can't Anne just, or Captain Wentworth, What's stopping them from just declaring their love outright?
1: I think the thing that we love about them is also what gets in their way. It's the self-restraint and modesty. They don't they're not like Louisa. They don't just throw themselves off of uh, steep stairs <laughs> into the arms of another. Yeah. They're deep thinkers. They think things through so intensely and for so many years that which is something I admire, but that of course is also what causes them to pull away from opening up. How so? We read about how they had, how they became engaged, and how they were passionate about each other, and they were much younger. But we never actually see that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because we know they're capable of it, and we know that that stuff must all be just constantly be bursting within them, you know. Um, because we know that they haven't changed. Their feelings are more or less the same. Even after all these years, they thought that maybe they had forgotten, that they may- maybe had healed, but at the first like meeting, at the first mention of their names, it all comes back to them.
0: Is it possible? How do you think the idea of nostalgia works in this book? Is it possible that Anne... We, we get most of this book through Anne. Captain Wentworth remains more or less a stranger and a mystery to us up until the very end, which... Mm most of this is narrated through a kind of third person limited point of view through Anne's perspective. But so my question is, is it possible that Anne is slightly misremembering the past and is, you know, because unrequited love as the years go by may very likely become something greater than it was in memory. Is it possible that nostalgia has made them love each other more than they ever did?
1: I don't know. I feel like Anne is portrayed as this very clear thinking individual. She doesn't seem like somebody who suffers from great delusions.
0: I think I, I just, it's an important dynamic in this relationship that they're both remembering, remembering, mm-hmm. remembering, remembering, remembering.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She takes some kind of pride in controlling her emotions. Mm-hmm. If anything, she's downplaying what she's feeling. You know what I mean? She strikes me as the kind of person who wouldn't truly acknowledge to herself how much somebody means to her after losing that person.
0: So the title Persuasion refers, of course, to Lady Russell's persuading Anne to break the engagement off, but there's so much self-persuasion that happens in this novel. And persuasion is both good and bad. There are good moments of persuasion, and then there are moments of persuasion where what is being persuaded is wrong. Right. So does Anne, I mean, I guess a general question is, The hazard of giving or taking advice, whether both to other people and to oneself, where can we turn to for wisdom? Mm. It's, I think, something that the plot is a question that the plot implicitly asks. Where can we turn to for wisdom? How can we learn how to act? Trusted advisors who love us sometimes lead us astray. Mm. Uh, Even the self, there are moments in the book where Anne, let me turn to one on, I don't know, maybe about a, a quarter of the way through the book. It's in chapter... Seven. This is just after they see each other again for the first time. They part ways again, and word gets back to Anne that Captain Wentworth said this about her, that Anne was, quote, so altered that he should not have known her again. I'll just read a couple paragraphs. These were the words which could not but dwell with her. Yet she soon began to rejoice that she had heard them. They were of sobering tendency they allayed agitation. They composed and consequently must make her happier. So she interprets these words to mean that she's aged badly. And
1: he has no interest in her.
0: But at least they they bring a kind of solace because the, the anxiety, the uncertainty is over.
1: Yeah. She doesn't have to wonder. Yeah. Could we fall in love again? That's right.
0: But the next paragraph starts this way. Frederick Wentworth had used such words or something like them but without an idea that they would be carried around to her. He had thought her wretchedly altered and, in the first moment of appeal, had spoken as he felt. He had not forgiven Anne Elliot. She had used him ill, deserted and disappointed him, and worse, she had shown a feebleness of character in doing so, which, in his own decided, confident temper, could not endure. She had given him up to oblige others. It had been the effect of over-persuasion." It had been weakness and timidity. So I find this a very interesting paragraph because who is speaking? I've talked in previous podcasts about this technique called free and direct discourse, which Jane Austen kind of perfects slash invents, where you go in and out of knowing if it's the character thinking these thoughts or the narrator. So is it the narrator saying he had not forgiven Anne Elliot? She had used him ill, deserted and disappointed him or he had thought her wretchedly altered. Is this just Anne's, oh, is this just a window into Anne's mind? Is this how Anne is interpreting the scene? Is she persuading herself that this phrase, all we have heard from Wentworth is, quote, that Anne is so altered that he should not have known her again. This is neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, this has no positive or negative spin on it. Mm-hmm. But in this following paragraph, it's as if Anne is persuading herself that this is only negative, that he hates her, that he's never forgiven her, mm. that she is wretched. Yeah. So is uh, how do you think, to, back to my original question, if the self is not trustworthy, and if wise people who love us, like Lady Russell, aren't really trustworthy, where can we turn to for help in making difficult choices?
1: Such a difficult question. I don't. Maybe the book is saying that um, good people, wise people like Lady Russell, who truly love you, as if you know she loves Anne as if she were her own child. She wants the best for her, and Anne trusts her. Yeah. And and trusts herself too. I think um, the book is making an argument that even with well-meaning people, with Seeming wisdom going around there, bad things just happen. And you can't look into the future. You can't know how a marriage will turn out. You never can tell. Right. You have to just do your best. You have to try to trust the people, try to follow the advice of people you trust, and just hope for the best. I mean, you can't do anything more than that. And, but most importantly, I think the book does a beautiful job showing that Anne does not... Resent Lady Russell. She doesn't hate her. Right. She she's wise enough to understand that these things happen. Like even smart people make mistakes. And maybe it wasn't even a huge mistake. Maybe it just happened to turn out that way. That Captain Wentworth proved to be a really solid, good person who can provide for himself and a family, because that was what was what she was concerned with. And Lady Russell, right? He was too
0: impetuous.
1: Right. And he was really young and he was he was confident he'd make a lot of money but and would be able to provide for a family, but there was no proof of that. Mm-hmm. So it could have gone the other way. He could have gotten very unlucky. Right. And yeah, and then Lady Russell, her you know, one of her worst nightmares would have come true of seeing Anne, you know, not living a comfortable life.
0: We make the best choices we can with the information available and I don't to just- resent
1: people afterwards if, yeah, if it turned out to be the wrong advice.
0: Or you don't resent ourselves. Yes. There's that wonderful bit at the very end when they've reconciled, they've, they've, you know, fallen back in love, so to speak. And um, Wentworth says something like, are you telling me that if I had come back two years after our initial breakup, you would have accepted me? And I was like, of course I would have. And he kind of kicks himself and says, six wasted years. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't know that you still had feelings for me. Yeah. I, this all could have happened in two years instead of eight. Yeah. But what I mean, you know, Wentworth is persuading himself that she doesn't like her. That's based on a rejection, which is kind of some kind of palpable proof. We make the best choices we can and we don't always know if, if it's going to work out. And sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about this novel is that, like, you know, it's maybe the best novel of second chances. They make a mistake, kind of, but it's not too late. They get to redo it and fix it. And there's this wonderful thing that Anne says at the very end, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. You were kind of going in this direction earlier, but to elaborate, this is the very, very end. Um, Anne is talking to Wentworth. And Anne, you're right, bears no ill will towards Lady Russell. She she doesn't lose any love for her or respect. They're still Mm. good friends. Wentworth is a little bit peeved and has always been (laughs) bitter that – This advice came from Lady Russell. Mm. And Anne says this, I have been thinking over the past and trying impartially to judge of the right and wrong. I mean with regard to myself, and I must believe that I was right, much as I suffered from it, that I was perfectly right in being guided by the friend whom you will love better than you do now. This is Lady Russell. Mm. To me, she was in the place of a parent. Do not mistake me, however. I am not saying that she did not err in her advice. It was perhaps one of those cases in which advice is good or bad only as the event decides. Mm -hmm. And for myself, I certainly never should in any circumstance of tolerable similarity give such advice. But I mean that I was right in submitting to her and that if I had done otherwise, I should have suffered more in continuing the engagement than I did even in giving it up because I should have suffered in my conscience. I have now, as far as such a sentiment is allowable in human nature, nothing to reproach myself with. And if I mistake not, a strong sense of duty is no bad part of a woman's portion. So even retrospectively, you can say it was bad advice, but it was the right choice to follow it. Because Mm -hmm. what is a young person supposed to do? Listen to parents or stand-ins of parents who love them.
1: And who have had more life experience. That's right.
0: So now Anne does kind of get the best of both worlds. Like Mm. she gets a clean conscience that she didn't impetuously and naively and ignorantly rebel against her parental figure.
1: Like so many young people do.
0: Yeah. And and she gets a second chance to marry Captain Wentworth. Mm. Why? Here's a good question. Why are we praising this virtue of submission? This is Jane Austen's own word, submission. Submission to parents. Should we lament That Jane Austen's heroines, I think this is true in all of her novels, never transcend or seek out to smash the conventions of their society. They always end up getting married and being wives. They're not interested in tearing down the system or reinventing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess Elizabeth Bennet is stubborn in a kind of semi-rebellious way, but uh, she wants a husband she wants a rich husband. Yeah. You know what I mean? She wants the things that her society says that she should want.
1: Yeah, and but- so does
0: Anne. So w- should we lament this fact that they're not m- more aggressively rebellious?
1: I don't think so. I think these books are especially persuasion. I think it's an extremely realistic book. I don't think, you know, I think people, they're born into their worlds, into their communities and societies and... And they rebel in their own small ways, maybe, but there's not really that much you can do. You know what I mean? What can Anne, what does Anne want to do? She wants to be with Ken Wentworth.
0: <laughs> so love is a, love and the desire to unite isn't a societal convention. That's a biological impulse. Is this yeah. your point? like. Um,
1: I think people seem to want to live in harmony with their, their surroundings, you know what I mean? Um, if they're good surroundings. And Anne lives in a very good situation. I mean, her, her dad and her sisters are not very loving, but...
0: I agree with you, but people listening might think Anne lives in a horrible situation. She lives in this kind of tyrannical patriarchy, right, where women aren't free. So, to play devil's advocate, isn't that true?
1: Well, I mean, compared with today, sure, but she didn't have today to compare it to. Mm. So, in her own ways, she was being rebellious by, even when she was 19, to fall in love with a man who didn't have a promising, you know, there was no fortune or anything. She was
0: marrying for love.
1: Exactly. So, in her own way, she was being rebellious. And,
0: But I also want to push back a little bit and argue that these books, this book celebrates convention, right? You say that she rebels in her own way, and that's true, but I don't think she needs to be a rebel for us to admire her. She knows Anne, I'm talking about Anne, and I think her author, mm-hmm. knows that the function of convention is to train or subdue, or I'll use the word persuade. Mm-hmm. The function of convention is to persuade the more impulsive and baser elements of human nature. Mm-hmm such as greed vanity lust mm. we have these impulses and it's conventions that teach us how to keep those under control and to be a human
1: how Who, to live securely in, in a stable way some traditions are good
0: <laughs> some traditions are good and cause immense stability and happiness yeah um think about mr elliot and sir walter mr elliot has lost all of his money and is deceitful and Sir Walter is vain, and all he cares about is how people look and how he looks. Mm-hmm. He still hasn't been able to transcend this ba- base, superficial, animal, surface-level obsession.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Contro- Anne has put certain aspects of human nature under necessary control. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's true that Anne—I mean, what's what's great about this novel is how subdued a character Anne is. She's very subdued. One might say stifled. In a bad way, one might say, submissive in a bad way.
1: Oh yeah, I. Sorry if I'm interrupting you, but this is one thing that I so love about this novel. There's so many. I feel like the idea of a strong female character is, you know, a woman who is loud and outgoing and just, um, you know, obviously breaking through all the conventions of her society, but. Anne is, to me, is such a strong female character without ever even, like, even physically raising her voice. I'm not saying women can't or shouldn't, but I'm saying that there's so many different kinds of strong women. And it's okay to be, like, an introverted strong woman.
0: Or quietness is not a sign of weakness. No, exactly. neither Neither is submission. Exactly. To say, for for Anne to say that I was right to submit to my parental figure yeah, is not a sign of weakness. The, she
1: is the uh, opposite of the Little mermaid.
0: <laughs> that No, this is right. You're right. It's a sign of an incredible maturity and self-control and strength. Right. She, the weak thing to do would have been to go with her, quote-unquote, heart.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But no, no, no. She, she, she had the inner strength to say, no, I live in a society where... The experience of elders is valued. Mm. And I acknowledge that I don't know as much as the older generation. Mm. I will trust them. Yeah. And I will listen to them. That, and even yeah. in retrospect, she doesn't disagree with this. She says, No, I was right to listen.
1: I mean, how proud would you be if our daughter turned out to be like Anne at 19 to have that kind of quiet wisdom?
0: It is a kind of quiet wisdom. Yeah. So, I understand that in some ways she has to stifle her individuality Yeah. and some people don't like that, but this is partly what it means to live in functioning societies that we can't do. I can't run any red light. I want, you know, there are some things that we have to curb and when we curb those things, what we achieve is something far greater than what we give up, which is a kind of deep inner interior freedom and integrity and wisdom. And compassion, all of the virtues, you know, we gain all of the virtues. Hmm. You need some control. Yeah. You need something to submit to. Yeah. And the people who don't submit to anything, like Sir Walter, are more or less brutes, ignorant brutes. Yeah. He doesn't submit to the wisdom of his elders, he doesn't submit to kindness, empathy. He's a kind of child's. Brute.
1: Oh yeah, he's one of the least likable characters in all of literature.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Anne is the anti-Ariel, isn't she?
0: Well, she. You mean by that that she? All of the mistakes that Ariel. I can't believe we're talking about the Little Mermaid. (laughs) I know. All of the mistakes. We are
1: because our culture and society loves that type, the Little Mermaid uh, type,
0: feisty rebel.
1: Follow your heart at whatever cost, even if there are terrible consequences. Even still, then... It's still good. Yeah.
0: It's good by default, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Oh, I wanted to ask you about the moral importance of remaining persuadable. So in chapter 10, Captain Wentworth has this little quite telling slash annoying sermon about this nut remember that he, he was dumped by Anne and resents her persuadability. So he sees persuadability as one of the worst traits a human can have. Mm-hmm. He learns after this experience to prize steadfastness and consistency of character. Mm-hmm. So he says this, they're walking you know, over the fields as they do to pass the time. And he says, here is a nut to exemplify a beautiful glossy nut, which blessed with original strength has outlived all the storms of autumn, not a puncture, not a weak spot anywhere. This nut, he continued, with playful solemnity, while so many of its brethren have fallen and been trodden underfoot, is still in possession of all the happiness that a hazelnut can be supposed capable of. Then, returning to his former earnest tone, my first wish for all, whom I am interested in, is that they should be firm. If Louisa Musgrove would be beautiful and happy in her November of life, she will cherish all her present powers of mind. So, firmness, steadfastness, unwavering, unchangeability, like a nut, you know?
1: Mm. Um,
0: but I think the book argues, chapter after chapter, the book argues, you know, with its series of actions that he's wrong. Mm. He,
1: he, he, he's kind of blinded by his passion, which is charming, which makes us like him even more than well, he's still so... Well, he's,
0: he's blinded by his resentment. He's like, okay, if because women, of his passion, yes, yeah, if women are inconstant, then surely, and I was burned, you know, the best trait is is constancy, like mm-hmm. this, nut, unchangingness. Yeah, Louisa, who is a, a sister-in-law to Anne,
1: mm-hmm.
0: is very interested in Captain Wentworth and hears the speech and takes it to heart and attempts to prove her steadfastness of will and unwavering determination yeah. by jumping off this stone wall.
1: Uh huh. Complete trust in the yeah. And the feeling. She will
0: will not waver. She will not give in. Yeah. She knows that Captain Wentworth likes this in people, so she wants to display it. And what happens? She falls and hits her head and goes unconscious and almost dies.
1: That's interesting that she reaches a point where she can't think anymore, isn't it? Why? She's unconscious, which is a similar thing. Being unchanging is in a way as giving up your free Mm. thought.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean about the moral importance of... Persuadability—you don't want to move with every wind that blows,
1: yeah—but
0: you also want to be persuadable,
1: yeah. And because of his kind of blindness, um, because he's resentful, he can't actually see that Anne was actually being um, firm and steadfast in a way. She was trusting her older relationships, right? And if he hadn't been, you know, so resentful and hurt, he might have been able to see that.
0: So the novel is a kind of, we don't, since we see it through Anne's eyes, we don't really know that this is happening until the end, but the novel is, it could be called the education of Captain Wentworth, you know, Mm. he comes onto the scene with this opinion that being steadfast and unwavering is the best. And he says, Louisa's about to jump. He says, no, 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 Louisa, do not be so foolish. And she jumps. He's trying to persuade her not to jump and he sees that she won't waver. And this is kind of tactile proof that, oops, people actually do need to be able to be talked into certain opinions.
1: Yes. It does seem to argue for both um, firmness and persuadability simultaneously.
0: There's this wonderful bit in the Iliad, which I know you love. Remember that moment when, I think it's Phoenix, so these... uh, Greek warriors Phoenix, Odysseus, and Ajax come to the tent of Achilles to persuade him to go back into the battle. And they take the message from Agamemnon that Agamemnon is willing to give Achilles all this stuff, 10 times what was taken from him. If only Achilles would come back into the battle and help the Greeks win the war. And Achilles says, I don't care about all of your gold, all of your land, all of your oxen. I don't care about any of this anymore. I think maybe I'll just go home. I hope the Trojans kill you all, you know? And Phoenix is this old man, this old Greek warrior. I think it's Phoenix. And um, he's kind of his last attempt to persuade Achilles, he says, he gets nostalgic. He says, oh, you know, I'm an old man and I've seen so much more than you. And he says, back in my day, men were great because they were persuadable. You know, they could listen to arguments and be persuaded. That's something that made them great. And this blind stubbornness is A huge problem. Oh yeah, I love that so much. Captain Wentworth is a little bit too much like Achilles until he learns through these through these events of the novel that oh no, you do need to be flexible in certain situations. You do need to be flexible.
1: And I don't want to get political or anything, but that's something I've been thinking about a lot since this last election. There's some there's people millions who are so set on a you know certain certain political party that. Nothing can change their mind about it. Yeah. No matter what. This
0: is true on both sides.
1: Yes. And that's not a good thing.
0: So you must be persuadable. There is this novel Persuasion. It's a very, it has its risks. It has its downsides. You can, it it can turn into delusion. There's a form of persuasion that's delusion, but it, it is still a virtue. You know, you still need to be persuadable. Um, And this novel, I think, is arguing that too much resoluteness is bad. Yeah. Well, we could say so much more about this book. And like I say, every rereading brings out different shades and different different things. But
1: And I am also going to try to rewatch that movie with Amanda movie. Root. The, it stars Amanda Root as Anne. I think that's her name. And she's just perfectly oh, cast. Everybody's perfect. Everyone. Charles Musgrove is <laughs> <It's> amazing. <laughs>
0: yeah, they're all good.
1: Do we have to stop talking about it?
0: We kind of do. No one is listening by now. I'm sure it's just us in a vacuum, which is fine with me. <laughs> it's such a great book, though. Yeah, no, no. We'll come back to it. We'll, we'll reread it again in three years, and we'll have this conversation. And we'll notice new things. We'll say different things. Well, it'll slightly be a different book to us. And proof that it is great. In a previous recording. I've already given you a writing prompt based on this technique called free indirect discourse, which Austen perfects or pioneers. For now, I just want you to notice how internalized the drama of persuasion is. So this isn't really a writing prompt, more of an invitation to model this technique in your own story. Even if what you're writing is very plot-heavy, it can only get better if you amplify the drama that is going on inside the main characters. Find ways to make their inner lives more complicated, even to themselves. Think about Anne Elliot and the tension between her past decision and her present wishes and the tension between what she thinks is proper in her society and what she currently wants and try to give your characters wishes or hopes or worries that they either can't get or they can't express to other people, or they're even afraid of admitting to themselves. Make your characters ambivalent about things, make them uncertain, make the plot hinge less on external elements and actions and more on emotions or opinions or beliefs that exist in the minds of the characters. This will help make sure that your characters feel less like puppets being moved around to serve a larger plot, and more like active, living, breathing human beings who have their own wills and ambitions and flaws, and are the catalysts for their own plot. For the poem of the day, more Jane Austen, like James Joyce or William Faulkner. Jane Austen's novels are so good that it's often forgotten that she, like those other authors, also wrote poems. Here's one called The Happy Laborer, remarkable, among other reasons, for its use of one rhyming sound for the whole poem. Happy the laborer in his Sunday clothes, in light drab coat, smart waistcoat, well-darned hose, and hat upon his head, to church he goes, as oft with conscious pride He downward throws a glance upon the ample cabbage rose that, stuck in buttonhole, regales his nose. He envies not the gayest London bows. In church he takes his seat among the rows, prays to the place the reverence he owes, likes best the prayers whose meaning least he knows, lists to the sermon in a softening doze, and rouses joyous at the welcome close. That's it for now. It's possible that over Christmas break, Claire and I will just do a few more of these for fun. I'll be starting new courses in the winter and we'll be continuing these podcasts for those courses with all new readings, all new books. I'm teaching uh, World Masterpieces 2, which goes from the Renaissance till now. So we'll be starting with King Lear and reading things like Charles Dickens, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Kafka, Virginia Woolf, Mary Shelley, a bunch of others. I'll also be teaching a poetry workshop, and we'll be doing some recordings on Elizabeth Bishop, Derek Walcott, Sylvia Plath, Vyslava Zimborska, Walt Whitman. So yeah, I'm eager to keep these conversations going and really looking forward to it. In the meantime, like I always say, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to be a great writer.